Welcome back, everyone, to another awesome episode of Biff Bites. I'm your host, Jerry B, and joined as always uh, by my co-host, Mike. How you doing, Mike? Doing well, Jerry. Happy holidays to you and to Brendan and all of our great listeners. Yeah, we, we have coming back on the cast for another episode, round two. Uh, we have program director for the Boston Institute of Finance, Brendan Flaherty, back on. Thanks for coming on again, man. No, again, thanks for having me. I'm surprised you did after the last one, but happy holidays <laughs> to both of you as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, we got our year-end episode in store. Got some great stuff to talk about. Uh, before we dive into that, though, real quick, I just wanted to remind everyone uh, that if you want to check out the past episodes we've done this year, also look at the past question of the episode, video tutorials, and all the other great study resources we have, uh, be sure to head over to BiffBites.com to find everything in one spot. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I have new episodes sent to your library automatically each month. Great place to find everything in one convenient location. So we have year end uh, coming up. We got a lot of things on people's minds, financial advisors, their clients, not just the holidays, but lots of things having to do with your finances uh, and your personal finances that you want to get in order before the uh, year comes to a close. And yeah, the year end is always one of those terminal dates. So year end and April 15th are where if something's not done, it doesn't get done. And, and so there's consequences. So certainly you want to pay attention to those deadlines. Yeah, definitely. April 15th is kind of like your catch up date where it's like, hey, you probably should have done this at the uh, the end of December. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely your... for some things. But yeah. there's, there's some things that even doesn't matter if it wasn't done by December 31st. It, it's never going to be done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess real quick, let's let's kind of go over a couple of those things. So, you know, April 15th deadline, I would say probably one of the biggest one is like IRA contributions. Would you guys yeah. think? Yeah. Yep. So anything that is uh, sensitive to income and uh, reducing income has to be done by uh, that time frame in terms of contributions. Um, Mike, what else? Can you think of anything else? Well, I was just uh, going to tag on that with April 15th um, for Roth IRAs. Um, yep. Remember that that five-year holding period begins on January 1st of the year for which the contribution is being made. So a client might right. forget and, and and not open the Roth until February or March or even April, but their clock would start in, in 2019. That's a good thing. That's yeah. a very good thing. Good point. So, yeah, so IRAs mostly with the uh, April 15th deadline, but today we kind of wanted to focus on a couple topics that have that much stricter deadline of December 31st. And yes. I think a big one we wanted to talk about that's probably gives people some frustration every year is wash sales. And we got a good question of the episode to kind of warm us up for wash sales. You guys want to dive into it? Sure. Sure. Awesome. All right. So your client sells common stock in Coca-Cola company uh, to realize a loss to offset gains in other parts of their portfolio. A wash sale may be triggered if he purchases which of the following? A, PepsiCo, common stock. B, Coca-Cola, common bonds maturing in 2025. C, put options on Coca-Cola company common stock. Or D, Coca-Cola company convertible bonds maturing in 2025. This is a good question. I like this one because there's a couple pitfalls here. Uh, that really kind of highlight the nuances of wash sale rules. Yeah, I agree. This is uh, yeah, this is a very good CFP exam question, too. Definitely. So uh, right off the bat, Brendan, you want to take a stab at this one? Yeah, so I, I think that um, if we take a look at the four options, I think you can quickly discount uh, that option A, the, the common stock uh, in, in PepsiCo, is not going to trigger a wash sale. While it's a very similar uh, security, it's, it's certainly not uh, an exact security, so you can go ahead and purchase that if you'd like. Um, the second thing that we can uh, get rid of is put options on Coca-Cola Company because that doesn't really allow you to obtain the stock. What we worry about here 
is that you're going to have a disallowing purchase, uh, which washes out your, your ability to take those losses. Uh, so if we take a look, really the only option here would be D, uh, Coca-Cola Company Convertible Bonds, because it gives the bondholder the option to convert at any time into Coca-Cola Common Stock, which would trigger that wash sale rule. Right. And just to remind people, so wash sale is basically when you sell something for a loss and then buy it back within a certain time period. It starts getting a little bit tricky with uh, your taxes and reporting losses. So uh, competitor with Pepsi, uh, that wouldn't happen because even though they are the same industry, you know, same similar stocks, same product, more or less, they're still separate entities. So they're completely separate. Uh, The bonds, while it is the same company of Coca-Cola, the bonds maturing in 2025, they are not a stock. It is just a debt asset. You are lending Coca-Cola money. has nothing to do with their common stock or their common stock performance, so that doesn't matter. The put options don't matter because that would enable you to sell additional shares of Coca-Cola if you had it, not buy additional, which is what you got to worry about. And that finally just leaves us with D, Coca-Cola Company Convertible Bonds. Even though they're bonds now and they don't count as bonds, the fact that they are convertible and could turn into common stock, that all of a sudden puts you in the dangers of the wash sale area. Yeah, and, and the, other, the other type of security that you want to consider is, is uh, buying calls because call options also give you that right to, to uh, uh, obtain the company's stock. Uh, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the, the other piece is that the wash sale is not only 30 days after the sale, uh, but if you obtain one of these securities 30 days prior to your loss harvest, uh, that loss will also be disallowed because they'll say, well, you were purchasing these securities in anticipation of really not selling the stock. That's yep. right. Yep, that's a good it, point. Yeah, exactly. It's both sides of the trade date before and yeah, after. A window. Yep. The, you know, the other thing here that... Um, you see clients try to do is is think they can get around it by having their spouse make the repurchase thinking that well that gets around it because it's not me or i'll turn around and buy it in my ira and and that'll get me around the wash sale and that's not going to work let's take a step back real quick because i'm sure we have at least one or two listeners out there who probably have never even heard of a wash sale uh before so what can you guys give me a quick uh, breakdown of what exactly is a wash sale and why it matters? So so a wash sale, let, let's take a step back even further and say, well, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here at the end of the year? Uh, and so when we have uh, years like this one uh, in particular where we have really good markets, um, people who have been actively trading in their account may have uh, substantial capital gains that they're facing. So one of the strategies that they and their accounting uh, may try to employ is to sell things in the portfolio that are showing unrealized losses uh, to try and minimize some of that capital gains exposure that they have. Uh, And what a wash sale does, if if you purchase a uh, similar security or, or strikingly the same security, then the IRS is going to say that, well, you didn't really actually sell the position. Uh, you just sold it in, in uh, trying to trigger that loss. Uh, and, and so they have these curbs, or as Mike said, the window, uh, which says that you can't buy a, a similar security or the same security uh, 30 days prior to or 30 days after the actual loss is taken. Uh, and they will wash away that loss, which is not going to be a good conversation between you and the client and you and the client's accountant for sure. Yeah. I mean, when I when I was studying for the Series 7, the, the way that it was explained to me that really helped it click for me was kind of learning about the history of wash sales. Um, you know, back in the day, what everyone used to do was on December 31st, everyone would sell all of their losers lock in that tax loss. Yep. And then on January 2nd, when they came back in and the stock market reopened, they would just rebuy all those losers and reset their cost basis at the much lower price while cashing in that uh, taxable loss uh, from their securities that they had sold off on December 31st. And eventually the IRS got wise to that and said, okay, guys, this is getting ridiculous. No more of that. We're introducing these wash sale rules to prevent people from just at the end of the year dumping their securities and then rebuying them in the new year. Yep, and and the the language that they actually use is open to interpretation because they say it's a substantially identical security 
uh, which is why, even though they're not specifically stock, the convertible bond and the uh, going long the call can trigger that wash sale. Yeah, that's a that's a good segue to kind of talk about the similar uh, rule as far as, you know, things that could cause wash sales without people realizing it. Like, I think one of the big ways uh, people end up doing a wash sale without realizing it or thinking they're being smart and getting around the wash sale rules, even though they're not, is when it comes to things like ETFs where or mutual funds where, say, I but I sell my Fidelity large cap mutual fund and then I buy the Vanguard large cap mutual funds. And if those mutual funds, uh, their holdings are substantially identical, I could end up triggering a wash sale uh, even though I was trying to be clever and get around it. Or or if it was an index pegged to the same index, I, I think we're right. not getting around it either. Yeah, that's right. right. That's uh, the you could probably have some wiggle room by just by doing something as vague as like large cap because they could be still substantially different depending on their holdings. But yeah, that's probably a better example, Mike. Say sell the you know uh, Spider S and P five hundred ETF and, and buy IVV. Exactly, yep. exactly. Where yep. it's actually you know okay, there's no debating it. These are actually just identical portfolios just offered by different investment companies. Yep. So yes, so that that's the other big one. Um, let's kind of talk uh going back to the pepsi and coca-cola because i the other one i always use as an example is like home depot and lowe's uh i remember i used to have uh, clients all the time be concerned because they knew just enough about wash sales to get themselves into trouble where they would think oh i sold lowe's that means i can't buy home depot because they're pretty much the same company right and and i would say that that's you know it's a it's a it's a good thought for sure, uh, but it's it's not going to trigger that wash sale rule because they are totally different companies. And even though they operate in the same space and you know a lot of the same markets, it's it's just not uh, you know, they're certainly not considered substantially identical. It needs to be uh, either the same company, uh, different variations of the same company's assets. Going back to you know Coca Cola stock and Coca Cola convertible bonds. Those are substantially uh, similar ETFs and mutual funds that are substantially similar. You know, these are all the things to be on the lookout for uh, when you're buying and selling your securities, not to accidentally trigger a wash sale because, oh, I'm selling my spider uh, ETF because I don't really like that company, but I still want to be invested in it in that uh, area. I just don't like the company itself. I want to switch to a different company. Now, all of a sudden, you've accidentally triggered a wash sale on yourself. Can you yep. can you also, I'm, I'm thinking, guys, of year-end distributions that, yes. that are on automatic reinvestment? When I worked at Fidelity, that happened all the time. We would get so many complaints of people who accidentally triggered wash sales on themselves because they had automatic reinvestment set up. And then they go in at the end of the year, they sell a position to, you know, lock in some of that loss without realizing, you know, 15 days ago, this position paid a dividend or a capital gains distribution, and they had it set for reinvestment. And that is technically a, uh, you know, a opening a new position within the 30 day time frame. And even though it was, you know, 15 days before they sold that asset, uh, it still triggers it because, like we said, it's 30 days before or prior the sale of the security. Yeah, so the advisor really has to start looking at that even before that window would open. At, at what point would the advisors reach out to a CPA or, you know, how do you see all that playing when you're going to recommend uh, particularly executing tax uh, loss harvesting what are your feelings about that? Uh, who else do you talk to? Who else do you get involved, if anyone? Well, you, you'd certainly want to make sure that if the client is working with other advisors, that he or she is engaged with those advisors and letting them know what's happening in, in this portfolio to make sure that they don't accidentally trigger the wash sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, you know, I, it's something I'm, I'm actually doing pretty actively right now is, is speaking with clients and their accountants to, to deal with this year-end strategy. 2019 has been a pretty good year, and it's it's a good year at the end of a, a, a string of good years. Uh, so there's there's a lot of, of gains that people are really trying to hide from, um, and it's getting harder because there's not a lot of losses in a lot of portfolios. So it's it's getting harder to, to trigger these, so so they become even more valuable. Um, and it's 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 incumbent really on on both the, the CPA, I think, uh, and the financial advisor to to deal with this 
collectively to, to, to make sure that they're not hurting their client uh, together. Yeah, I, I will say it, in this day and age, uh, wash sales have gotten a lot easier to deal with just because the trading software available and the trading uh, tools that the firms have put in place have made it really easy to automatically catch uh, wash sales. That's not to say they'll prevent wash sales. No, nope, they definitely don't. They don't. You, you, they don't so prevent a, them, but they will nope. tell you if you do. <laughs> it, it's you know it's it's funny because because um, you do Jerry. It's a good point. You get I get this this uh, uh, this red flag that comes across my trading screen that says potential wash sale violation, um, and but there's it, it sometimes gets lost in the noise because there's a lot of other things that that other qualifiers that could be warnings of. You know whether or not you're setting yourself as a, as a, a broker dealer on this or a broker. So there's a number of other things that qualify as well. Uh, so if it gets lost in the noise, uh, all those other things you can repair, but the wash sale you cannot. Yeah, I, I mean I've like I know about wash sales. I I've dealt with wash sales. I've helped clients deal with their wash sales, and I still will sometimes accidentally trigger a wash sale in my own accounts. I'll do a trade, and then I'll groan when I look down and I see uh, the software that I use puts a big blue W on the mm-hmm. position when I have a wash sale. I'm like, oh, what did I do this time? So yeah, I mean. It's it is it is uh, a pretty complicated uh, situation. It can happen even if you are careful. Uh, but I think that kind of leads into another thing I wanted to talk about, where I think there's a big misconception where people think that wash sales are terrible, they're bad, you shouldn't happen. Happen. They're not really a bad thing. They're just inconvenient. Yeah, and you're not going to jail, <laughs> right? Well, maybe just maybe just for twelve months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fi- financial jail yeah. for twelve months locked in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's not going to be a good. It's not going to be a good client relationship thing. But but you know, to both your points, it's it's not. It's certainly not fatal. Um, and the loss is allowed. It, it just it, so what happens is is the disallowed loss will be added to the basis of those new securities, whatever they were that you purchased. And so when you eventually sell those, you'll be able to harness that loss. Uh, but you know it's not going to be good for you because you, you might have to redo taxes because you, you you counted those losses in your taxes and now they're disallowed. So it's it is a major inconvenience. It's it's uh, it's it's not a great conversation to have. Uh, yeah, I think I think the biggest reason why people associate it with being such a bad thing is that you are making this trade for a specific reason. You are selling yeah. this stock because you want to harvest those losses. Yeah, and you should have that that active thought that says, "Hey, this is the best thing for me to to sell in order to to uh, offset this gain or harvest a loss or whatever." Um, and all that goes out the window. All that analysis goes out the window if you if you screw it up and and, and trigger a wash sale. Right. Yeah. So you you get this wash sale, and now all of a sudden you're being told you can't take that tax loss, and then that's yep. I got screamed at so many times by clients who didn't really understand what was going on because they hear you can't take that tax loss. And to them, that means they can never take that tax loss. Can you break down what happens to that when a wash sale is triggered and you're no longer allowed to take that taxable loss by selling that security that was at a loss? What happens to that loss? Where does it go? That loss is not gone forever, but the basis is increased in the subsequent purchase. So if you were down $10 a share when that was executed, your basis in the new holding is going to be $10 higher than what you purchased it for. So it's not lost forever. Right. It basically, your loss gets shifted over to your new position. I had a Yeah, a client, to the future. Yeah, I had a client back in the day who day traded Apple. And he was terrible at it. He would yeah. get so he would get so many losses on his day trading of Apple, and because he was day trading, he was racking up wash sale after wash sale after wash sale. And so it got to the point where he would like close out his position. He would buy Apple again, and as soon as he bought the position, he was already at a ten thousand dollar loss per share on Apple because all of his wash sales were stacking up and up and up and wow. they just keep getting carried forward to his most recent position that he just opened. I, right. I think that guy might have wanted to find a new hobby because it's pretty hard to, to lose money on Apple in the I last know, right? eight years. <laughs> so, In fact, day trading is about the only way you can lose money on Apple. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I think this is also um, far more 
complex than what we might give credit as well. And, and really, there needs to be a holistic approach to, to that harvesting and, and pay attention to brackets and marginal brackets and long-term capital gain brackets and not take a loss just for the, the, the fact that I want to offset a few thousand dollars if the investment's still viable or have we given up on it or is it no longer part of the strategy and not just chase the deduction. Um, yeah, and you know, that's Go ahead. That, that's part of these conversations that I, I have with clients at the end of the year is, is okay, well, so we know what the, the gains are this year and we know, you know, as a result of that, what the value of this loss is to you. Is it, because you can carry these losses forward, right? So so is it potentially more valuable to, to take those losses next year? Are you anticipating, you know, higher capital gains next year? Is there anything else going on in other portfolios or the sale of other assets that, that may generate a higher capital gain next year or, or capital gains or, or marginal tax rates going up next year? Uh, where, where these losses become more valuable to you. And sometimes there's, there's you know, to your point, Mike, there's there's intelligence in not taking them. Yeah, you want to look at, at, the, at the bigger picture and, and understand as best one can that the capital gains netting process to see, well, what are we really looking at with everything uh, yep. this year? And is there anything we could do yet in this year to drive down the taxable income in hopes of maybe dropping a level uh, on the long-term capital gain rate. And it yep. might not be so bad just to take the gain, it, but it's it's yep. really much, much bigger than just what about this one security offsetting uh, the gain in this other one. You know, it's funny. Is it's it's the only time of the year that you ever say to a client, well, you know, the good news is we have losses. You know, it's, it's the only time of the year that <laughs> yeah. that works. Save, save those up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, this raises a good point too, is a lot of the discussion around this comes at year end, but it may be possible much earlier in the year to identify the loser, right? And and and, and it could be sold earlier in the year. Yeah, that's I mean that's a strategy that uh going back was given to me as advice early on was you shouldn't only be thinking about tax loss harvesting in the last couple of weeks of the year, you should be thinking about tax loss harvesting year round. You should yeah. always be looking for those opportunities. On an ongoing basis, yeah, part of the review process. Yeah, and especially with wash sales is, you know, you could look at something and say, hey, if we sell this now, it's going to trigger a wash sale. But if we're having that conversation in June, all we have to do is wait 31 days and then we can get around that wash sale because we're waiting outside the uh, the, thir- the 30 day time period. But if we're having this conversation on December 15th, we don't have 30 days to wait anymore. That's and it gets right. back to yeah. the behavioral stuff we talked about last time, which is clients are going to want to, they're not going to want to pay attention to any of this until December, right? right? Year end is what creates a lot of these conversations. And to Mike's point, you know, part of the, the planning regiment would be to, you know, have it be part of the agenda. Right. And that's and that's your job as a CFP is, you know, you have to be thinking about these things for your clients, because like we said, our clients aren't going to be thinking about this. They're only going to think about it when they realize the taxes are coming due soon and they need to get those those sales taken care of before the end of the year. Yeah, and I'm I'm from Chicago and I'm bummed about that software you talked about in Chicago. We always assume the blue W is Cubs win. Oh. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you, not I, it, it's huh? a surprise because you, nope. you wouldn't get to see them very often. Well, shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, software software has been has been great as far as the advances it's made. It'll tell you when you have a wash sale. Like back in the day, like way back in the day, you didn't find out you had a wash sale until the IRS sent you a letter saying you owed more money. Now, at least you'll be able to tell a wash sale right away if it happens. And even some software, like Brendan was saying, some software will actually warn you before you even make the trade that this could. Yeah, before you push that final button. You know, and, and so with, with most, you know, both at Merrill Lynch and now at Jannie Montgomery Scott, when, when, you, when you go through a trading screen, there's, there's multiple steps to actually executing that trade. And, and there's, there's systematic reviews that go on to make sure that you're not you know, towing any line that you're unintending, you're not intending to tow. Yeah. When I was uh, working the trading desk at Fidelity, we actually had a, a pretty lengthy checklist. You know, I felt like an airline pilot running through my, yeah. uh, my pre-flight checks, you know, go down well, the list, I mean, check for all the different things to make sure you're not getting into trouble. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. When you read the story, do you bring that checklist point up, but planes stopped crashing after those checklists came into the cockpit. You know, that was, yeah. that was an immediate uh, positive response for them. Just like, 
make sure the ga- the the fuel's got the plane's got fuel. Make sure yeah. the engines are on. Make sure you know and like that stops people from making those stupid errors that we talk about a lot in classes about you know minimize your stupid errors on the CFP exam. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, even though yeah, even though each individual item seems simple, and how could you ever forget it when you stack a list of you know twenty thirty of them in a row? It, yeah. it starts uh, becoming a problem to memorize them all. Yeah, the checklist yep. is a great idea. All right, that was pretty good, guys. Now, kind of a tangent off of wash sales. Uh, it's kind of part of the bigger picture of tax loss harvesting in general. So let's kind of go back to basics here. You know, why do we want to tax loss harvest? What is at its root the reason why tax loss to our harvesting is so important? Well, just to reduce the, the current year's um, tax liability, you know, particularly in years that it might look to be higher than than others. We're just always trying to minimize that in a, you know, in a legal way. Yeah. I mean, I Did think... you say legal or illegal, Mike? <laughs> yes. <laughs> legal. <laughs> What? We're trying to legally tax dodge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I would think the the big part that often gets overlooked with tax loss harvesting conversations is in order to do tax loss harvesting, you actually need to have gains first that you want to offset. Yeah. And it, as I was saying before, in a year like this, you also have to have losses. Right. You know, and, and, and so it's it's when you've had a run here. So. You know, people had had an abundance of losses coming out of the financial crisis, but that's that's not necessarily uh, something you can rely on anymore. Yeah, that's a good point, Brendan. Those, uh, you know, that well of loss from the early 2000s and the 2008 financial crisis, you know, those are really starting to dry up. People are closing off those positions. We've had almost a decade of near constant growth. Uh, it's starting to get to the point where people don't have as many losers as they used to, to choose from. And if they do, they should probably be talking to a new financial advisor. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that too. That too. Yeah, so really... At the at the end of the day, in its most basic form, tax loss harvesting is you're just kind of balancing the columns. A little bit of loss for, to offset a little bit of gain. That way you or don't. Or vice have versa. To pay, yeah, or vice versa. That way you don't have to pay the taxes on your gains. And and I think that um, you know just just to make sure that we also have everyone understanding that you're only you're only taxed on gains that you realize. So you can carry forward unrealized gains in your portfolio indefinitely under current tax rules. Um, but once you sell that for a gain, then it becomes a taxable consequence. So uh, it's it's only on realized gains uh, that you have a tax consequence. True. Yeah. Good point. None of that is set in stone until you hit that sell button. Uh, that's that's when it actually gets locked in. Are there any... So we talked a little bit about wash sales as, as a kind of a tax loss harvesting strategy gone poorly. <laughs> what are some uh, some good tax loss harvesting strategies? Well, I mean, I, I can say that, that um, part of a lot of the conversations that, that I don't think I'm unique to the to, to this. I think a lot of people in, in, in our business um, will will talk strategically about whether or not it makes sense to take losses now or in the future. Um, and you try to get it down to a point where it's almost impossible, or at least it's not something I'm, I've, I've had a lot of experience with in my career, uh, where we completely neutralize gains. Typically, we get it down to a, a more palatable level for the client and to a lesser extent to their CPA. Um, and, and so we may leave some losses in the uh, unrealized in the portfolio and just kind of capture to, to bring it down to something, you know, th- that's a more manageable pill to swallow. And then, you know, again, based on expectations of future gains, because you can take a look at the unrealized gains that remain in the portfolio and think, we're eventually going to have to take these too. So these losses may be more valuable in the future if tax rates rise and, and things like that. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, because for a long time, especially after the financial crisis and people had these stacks and stacks of losses to get rid of, for years afterwards, people's goal was to be tax neutral. They would sell just yeah. enough so that their losses equaled their gains. Now we're starting to get to the point where those wells are running dry and a few of those people were probably thinking, man, maybe I should have actually paid some of those taxes when I was in a lower tax bracket so I'd have those losses that I can use later in life uh, when the taxes might end up being higher than they were before. Yeah, and that's that's always the risk here is we just don't know. Uh, you know we're in a pretty favorable capital gains tax environment right now and have been for a long time. But there's certainly no guarantee of that moving forward. And, and so, you know, those losses that you're you're offsetting 15% gains with now, maybe you'd be offsetting 20 or 25% gains 
four years from now. Yeah, and there's a lot of talk of that right now uh, as we move into an election year. You know, how much of these favorable circumstances could change tax-wise? And then Brendan said something really important. Um, It might be better to hold on to this loss for later. Uh, I think we need to pay attention to the character of the loss. You know, and that's why the netting process is so important of how does this shuffle out? What do we end up with? Do we have a long-term gain that's been reduced? Well, if it wasn't reduced, what would the tax be on it as we sit right now with these favorable brackets versus if I have a a short-term loss, um, you know, what's that saving me in taxes? Because that's going to be at the regular bracket rate, not at the lower rate. We can only take 3000 and then carry forward excess. But what's that 3000 worth as a as a net loss? Yeah, that 3000 I wanted to ask you about that too, Mike, because that's a great point that you brought up when we were talking about wash sales. Can you get into that uh, 3000 a bit? Because uh, it is possible to actually, you know, overtax loss your gains by a certain amount each year as well. Sure. Well, well, in the netting process, uh, as you're aware, uh, the 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 like kind are netted together first. Um, you know, we have uh, long term gain, long term loss, short term gain, short term loss. That's the first net that happens. And then if we still have, you know, we have one loss and one gain from each, then we net those together and the big number wins. Whatever the result of that is, that's where we end up um, being able to report. So if in the netting process, it turns out that there is a net loss, we can only claim 3000 of that loss on the current year's taxes. The rest of it will need to be carried forward uh, indefinitely until we can use it up. And I think all of that needs to be balanced and thought of before we push sell. Yeah. And, and the important distinction is that $3,000 can be taken against your income for the year. That's right. That's at the the bracket rate. That's at your full marginal rate is what you're saving if that ends up. So what's it worth? Just do the math. Yeah. So if I if I'm just a terrible investor, I have no gains for the year. I buy one security and I lose three thousand dollars on that security and i sell it even though i don't have any gains i can still take up to three thousand dollars of loss and offset my income for the year by those three thousand dollars so that's that's uh that's also another tool that you can use uh to kind of lower your taxes and also that that really effectively lowers your taxes i think that's why it's set at a you know a comparatively low threshold of only $3,000 just because right. of how powerful that tax write-off can be by offsetting by, you know, your, your loss for the year. Big discussions. <laughs> All right, guys. One last topic I wanted to talk to you about that's related to end-of-the-year deadlines and especially in the holiday season is gift giving. I'm not just talking about presents under the trees. I'm talking about gifting as far as it relates to your taxes. A present that may be even better for some people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The present of cold, hard cash. That's always Absolutely. Nice. <laughs> yep. So uh, I guess that is kind of a distinction we can talk about a little bit is that uh, when we talk about these giftings, usually there's a little bit of, you know, wiggle room. You know, if you're getting $500 from grandma, they might not necessarily be reporting that. Uh, when we talk about kind of gifting and family gifting, we're really usually talking about the larger amounts, uh, amounts in excess of $15,000. Yeah, or we're gifting strategies, right? So yes. we're talking, it's not just, this isn't like the, you know, here's 20 bucks, good luck in college. It's, it's this is a gifting strategy to, to reduce an estate. Exactly. Real quick, Mike, you want to kind of go over the uh, the baseline limitations? Yeah, sure. And, and and we use giftings sometimes in discussions kind of interchangeably. But remember, when we reference that, we, we could be talking about two different aspects that impact taxes. The one where we're giving family or friends uh, property, uh, you know, we're giving them money. Um, we're really trying to avoid gift taxes when we do that type of gifting versus charitable giving. That's a different topic altogether, but what we're mainly focused on right here are just 
between family members and such. And so we have an annual exclusion every year. Yes. Yeah. We had a really good conversation about charitable gifting. I believe it was two episodes ago. So mm-hmm. if you're interested more about charitable gifting, definitely check that out. Uh, today, we are only going to be focusing on friends and family gifting. Yeah. So um, there's an annual exclusion. There's some rules, um, you know, that you'd want to read up about as far as the gifts uh, that are eligible. Uh, the biggest being that it has to be a gift of present interest, uh, but we can give 15000 to an unlimited number of people without it uh, triggering uh, any type of gift tax. Um, and then there's, there's what's called gift splitting. So if a spouse consents to join in on the gift, then $30,000 can be given to an unlimited number of people without triggering uh, gift tax. And that's that's the annual exclusion. It tends to go up a little bit every few years. Right. And, so, and just for clarification, that's 15000 from each spouse. Correct. Yes. And that, I think, is where people sometimes get confused is they see 15000 and they think it's a 15000 hard limit. Really, you could give away millions and millions of dollars and never pay a cent in gift tax on it. So long as you're giving away those millions and millions of dollars to in $15,000 increments to different people each time. That's right. And then at death, it would preserve if we always just stayed within that limit, there is still the entire uh, lifetime exclusion amount available. Um, If we haven't used any of that up over the years by going over 15,000 or whatever that year's limit is, then at death, there's still uh, is what 11.4 million um, per spouse that could be (laughs) transferred. Let's let's back that up because I, I feel people are going to get a little bit confused about it because I know people okay. first learning about this, uh, they have a hard time understanding it. So, yes. Yeah, so your yearly exclusion is $15,000. You can give $15,000 scot-free. I think so. The original intention of it is for those situations of, you know, someone giving you a big present for your birthday, things like that. That's supposed to cover the $15,000 uh, exclusion where you don't have to report it on your taxes. You don't have to pay any taxes on it. But if it's over $15,000, that's when you either have to pay taxes on the amount over 15000 or option B, have that excess count against your lifetime exclusion of $11.4 That's right. Yep, that's exactly right. And the default is using up the exclusion first. Right. Right, yeah. You always use up your annual exclusion first. So... Uh, I think probably one of the big areas where this comes into play for most people is uh, helping their kids out with, uh, like, say, getting them their first car. That's why a lot of parents will, even though they'll, like, give them the keys, they won't transfer the title of the car into their kid's name because then that actually becomes a gift. You know, if you give your kid a a brand new car uh, and you just hand them the keys, you still own that car You're just letting them use it. But if you actually transfer the title to their name, now all of a sudden you could be getting into uh, gifting issues. As opposed to retaining it and getting into liability issues. Yes. (laughs) It's always a trade-off. They can both both take care of your estate, right? They can both both reduce your estate. Right. Yeah, I guess pick your poison at that point. (laughs) What was was the behavioral finance piece that that we we fear loss more than we... Appreciate gain. Yeah, we so. suffer from loss. We <laughs> suffer from loss more than we. It's the disposition effect. Yeah, we, we suffer more greatly from losses than we benefit from gains. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly in that aspect. So right? actually, when you put it that way, yeah. maybe you should transfer the title into your kid's name. Yeah. You know, take take that yeah. uh, gift tax hit, but you know, have a little bit more peace of mind. Yeah. Right. But you know, this is all still really fascinating conversation, and 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 again, points to holistic financial planning, if not family level financial planning, where we're debating. You know, well, I was going to give this. We love this uh, security that we've had. It's done so well. And I want I want my daughter to have it for this or that. Uh, but I, I don't really want to sell it now and, and, and trigger pain for the gain. But then you look at the daughter's side, you know, what would her situation be? And again, you get into what are the what are the brackets at work here? What's the taxable income? How much would she actually have to uh, pay if she sold it? As opposed to, let's say, holding on to that and passing it at death. 
where the daughter would get a step up in basis and could immediately liquidate and pay zero tax. She might not have to pay that much if you give it to her now based on her brackets. There's definitely been a shift. I've noticed over the past couple of years, uh, and it was very succinctly, if not morbidly put by a client of mine that said, I'd rather pass my assets with a warm hand than with a cold one. And I, I think that what she was trying to say is I'd like to see these people enjoy this while I'm still here to watch it as opposed to having them get all of this when I die. And it, that's that's definitely been a shift in the last four or five years where it used to be just this is going to – they don't, I don't even want them to know about it. They'll find out when I'm dead. Um, whereas now I think the baby boomers are, are kind of shifting their their feelings about that. I think it also comes up all the time, at least what I've noticed, is parents helping kids with a first-time house purchase. Mm-hmm. You know, with, yeah. with the way the economy is and, you know, I don't need to rehash all the millennials have killed X industry articles, but a lot of, uh, you know, the younger generation, parents are helping their kids more and more and more uh, with getting those large purchases like their first house. and gifting is going to come into play with that because it's not like just giving your 16 year old their first set of wheels and letting them you have the keys you know if you're actually helping your kid get a house you're most likely going to be running into a gifting situation in that yeah that's which true. is fine i mean there there's you know that there's there's nothing necessarily wrong with that it's just it's it's a little bit more complicated yeah and, and all the more reason to to be holistic about it. You know, what other areas does yeah. this touch? And, you know, with yeah. with this type of lifetime exclusion, do we really care that it's a taxable yeah. gift because we've got so much credit here? It really, you know, all when I when I was young, I hated when the answer to something was it depends. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> now I realize it really yeah. does depend. But therein lies the opportunity for financial planners and advisors to ask the question, open doors, get into conversations that they had avoided before because there's all kind of opportunity with this. And just pr- present alternatives and say, hey, here's here's strategy X and here's strategy Y and yeah. here's the pros and cons of both and let's make the decision that s- seems to make the most sense for you and the family. Yeah, don't be afraid of it. Yeah, and that that is a good point. A lot of this could just be a moot point for uh, the majority of your clients because, like we said, 11.4 lifetime exclusion is a pretty high number for most people. For most clients. For know, now. Yeah. For now, right. What yeah. is it? Is it 2025 yeah. it's set to go back to 5.6? Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens in 2020. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe they may accelerate that a little bit. Yeah, it could accelerate so. it depending on how the elections go. So yep. yeah, that's yep. that's the other thing where it makes long term planning really hard is you know all these numbers could really just get reversed uh, with the next election. Yeah, that's job security, baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly yeah, is. We, You're gonna need me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Financial advisors love the political turmoil because yeah. you're gonna have to do a new plan every year. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so definitely something to keep an eye on in the next year or two to see how the uh, the tax situation shapes up. But even if uh, nothing changes in the next year or two, it is already just set to automatically expire in 2025 unless Congress uh, decides to extend it. Yep. Yep. So all we can do is wait and see for that. Um, before we kind of close off, though, there are some... Uh, couple interesting tidbits with uh with gifting other ways to avoid gift tax do you want to go over that quickly mike you had some good ones well um i I think you mentioned grandparent um and you know one of the nice things uh, that a grandparent can do if they have a desire to give money to to the grandchild for uh, for college is to uh put that into a 529 plan and um and then you know it can come out tax free is the bottom line on that but um the law allows for a, kind of a pro rata uh, deposit to be made where where the grandparent can use or anyone can use five times the the app annual exclusion um so per person would be $75,000 at once could go into the 529 if it's a joint gift then we've got 150,000 that in one lump sum could go into the into the 529 plan right it's it's i believe the official terms accelerated gifting accelerated yeah Yep. So basically yeah. the IRS says, hey, if you're putting this money into a 529, we're going to let you make the next five years of gifts all at once. Put it all in the 529 now. That way it can start invest it and to have it start making money for you. You don't have to do it year over year over year. It's just if you do this now, you can't give them anything else for the next five years. 
Yeah, and if they die before the five-year period is up, a portion of that would come back into the estate. Yes, good if, point. If the, the grantors die, not the, not the child. That's yes, right, yes. that's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, if the grandparent did. But that's, uh, you know, that's a lot of money in one, one fell swoop that can go in. Then, again, holistically speaking, though, then we got to turn around and talk about what, what college year will the money be used because there's some advantages uh, as it relates to FAFSA and the expected family contribution to using that later, say like junior year, senior year, rather than immediately. That's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother (laughs) discussion. (laughs) But again, it just points to, we've got to be on our game. We have to be looking at all of this and how it impacts everyone involved and the timelines. So yeah, so that's a really good uh, tidbit. The five twenty nine five year catch up. That's something that's unique to five twenty nine plans. I don't believe there's any other in, uh, account that allows that sort of uh, accelerated gifting. Unless I mean, there might be some. No, I mean, I, one. I, I, I say all the time that I wish the government would allow that for IRAs. You know, so yeah. I mean, they, they do the catch up contributions, which is you know, it's it's nice, but not necessarily as meaningful. As saying, well, if you haven't done it or if you're allowed at a certain age to put five years front-loaded uh, in, into an IRA, uh, I, I think that that would make uh, a lot of sense. But they yeah. don't call for my opinion. <laughs> yeah. But you're yeah. right. I mean, that, that that's super powerful with uh, the 529s because, yeah. yeah, that five-year front-loading, allowing that compounding to start right away, you know, that could be the difference in thousands of dollars when all said all is said and done. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. And you can change beneficiaries on them, too, later, um, you know, so it can be extended to another family member, perhaps. Right. Yeah, they're very flexible. They're, they're, they're really a great way to fund college. Uh, kind of related. So if, say, the kid doesn't have a 529, another little bit of a loophole is the direct payment uh, option to get around the gifting. Uh, you want to go into that as well, Mike? Sure, yeah. Um, it's always something, an alternative to, to consider. So the way that works, and we'll just use two the two biggest examples. Um, if... And we can use grandpa again. Um, if those payments are made directly to a school or the second biggest is uh, to a medical facility, it's not a taxable gift at all. So that amount could, could be unlimited theoretically that they could pay directly to the school or the hospital without triggering any kind of gift tax consequences. Basically, the key is the beneficiary can't ever touch the money. So grandpa can't write you a check you deposit it in your bank account and then you write the school a check can't do that that's all of a sudden a gift because you took control of the money if grandpa writes the check directly to the school though not considered a gift he's just paying your tuition for you that's right yeah and for our cfp student listeners uh that often is a question on the cfp exam where we need to know about direct transfer good thing to keep in mind if the question is talking about a direct transfer and then gift tax it's probably going to be a pitfall yeah yeah i'll tell you i hope i hopefully mike's grandkids are, are listening uh so they can take <laughs> yeah. notes so they can they know what to ask for this christmas yeah mine's <laughs> actually set up as a charitable foundation so you actually could send me the money and deduct <laughs> yeah. it you know and it's not too late it's only it's early december Man, you guys, yeah. you, you guys are getting cash gifts. All I get is hand knitted sweaters. I want to, I want, I want to have these types of problems. <laughs> Sweater and a fruitcake. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, be, you can be like me and just get hand knit sweaters and not have to worry about any of this, guys. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we were focused on this at year end, but you know, there's all kinds of things to explore with. Uh, you know, putting expenses and things into, you know, I've heard of some people even making mortgage, an extra mortgage payment in December just yep. to get the interest put into this year. Um, and I've, I've pounded this to death today, but the holistic, holistic financial planning. Yeah, it is powerful. It, it is. And, and to Mike's point, you know, being out a little bit ahead of, of this, you know, ahead of Thanksgiving, because it's, it's hard to cram all of this in at the end of the year, because this, there, it, you know, it, as we've kind of gone through in this call, uh, or this podcast, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, and then multiply it by however many clients you have. It's yeah. it's not yeah. an easy task. Uh, that's why no, we really want to be thinking about these things earlier in the year, especially in the summer 
when your clients don't want to talk to you, they just want to be at the lake or the beach or wherever, you know, you should be having these, these conversations and bringing it up with your clients. That way you're not doing this mad rush in the small amount of time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Right. Cause you'll be sloppy and inevitably something will be missed. Oh yeah. Uh, It was, I remember it was, I, I really look forward to this year, you know, not having to do any of that because man, between charitable gifts and, uh, family gifts and tax loss harvesting, you know, the, the week in between Christmas and new year's was always a nightmare. And <laughs> yeah, re- re- don't forget required minimum distributions. Oh yeah. Requirement. Oh yeah. Minimum, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> I am very glad that I am now decades yeah. away from ever having to worry about requirement distributions again, <laughs> yeah. because yeah. Yeah. those were no fun to deal with. <laughs> well, that, you no. know, that's another whole interesting topic when you think about, those that deferred until April for their first one. Yep. And now you turn around yep. saying you have to do it again. <laughs> by the do end it of twice. Yes. Yep. That's, yep. that's not real tax efficient. <laughs> well, that that's also another topic we can talk about on a future episode. Another, also, another podcast for sure. Yeah. Require minimum distributions to charities. We used to do that all the time, you know, just yep. uh, uh, immediately have it go from your IRA to a charitable donation and get, a little bit complicated as well so maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode sure yeah direct transfer to an hse yeah or hsa what i say (laughs) hsa you're giving me you're giving me ptsd (laughs) this is your life jerry (laughs) i i teach now i don't have to deal with any of that Uh, awesome guys. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, I had a ton of fun. Hope you guys did too. Good stuff. And, uh, if you're looking for more information about any of this, feel free to write in, visit our website, biffbites.com. That's where we gather everything together. That's where you can subscribe to our newsletter. That's where you can get back episodes. Uh, that's how you can get in contact with us. Send us in emails, uh, reach out to us and, you know, we're happy to talk to you about all this stuff because we love talking about it. Yeah. And I just want to uh, mention real quickly, um, we're starting something new called Biff Mini Bites. Yeah. Definitely. And these are uh, f- five minutes on some key topic, particularly geared for the CFP exam, but helpful information regardless. And we'd love to get your feedback as those start rolling out on what you'd like to to see five minutes on. And um, so watch for those in, in the coming days, actually. Yeah, there are uh, cool. some good stuff put together. And those are actually going to be videos, too, I believe, Mike, correct? Um, yeah, not video as in, you know, I'm on camera or anything like that. That That's that's scary. But um, <laughs> you know, there will be some uh, accompanying visual for it uh, as well and that they can actually download if they wish. Definitely. And uh, those are also going to be on our YouTube page. I don't know if we've talked about our YouTube page much on other episodes, but that's another resource we have. Uh, if you just go to YouTube and search Boston Institute of Finance, you'll go straight to our page. And we have a bunch of videos on there on things like how to use the calculator, uh, mortgage amortization, 529 savings. Uh, we did a really great episode uh, video, Mike, on the uh, code of ethics and practice standards and the changes with that. So if you're also looking for some visual to go with your audio, head over to our YouTube page to check our uh, content out on there. All right. Sounds good. Well, I will see you gentlemen next month for the next episode of Biff Bites. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Happy holidays, everybody. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you.